morning. It's a long title for a sermon. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I pray that you would enable those who listen to my words, whatever their age, to hear and retain whatever you saw. I want to say, first of all, thank you to this church community for giving me the opportunity to preach today. I feel especially privileged to do this on the Family Sunday when I actually also get to speak to the children. So, I've chosen a very ambitious topic, as you can see, uh, the topic of what we might call Christian love, Christian charity. Most sermons that are preached in our community, very appropriately, are preached on one or two or maybe three scripture passages, and the preacher tries to really unpack uh, in detail what those passages have to say to us. And that's very appropriate. Uh, in this case, uh, I felt rather to do an overview kind of sermon on a topic that is both very vast and very central to the Christian faith. And I'm sorry in advance if it was presumptuous of me to have taken on such a topic. I'm very, I'm very aware that I can only scratch the surface and say things that are probably not quite the best things to say about the topic. Um, <clears throat> so it probably is somewhat presumptuous for me to do this, but during the times that I did pray about what I should do this rare sermon about, I gradually sensed that this was the topic I should choose. In a sermon at St. Stephen's many years ago, perhaps some of you remember it, I heard that a well-known South American preacher got up to give his sermon one Sunday and simply told his congregation, love one another. Or perhaps Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. That was it. The next Sunday, he didn't say. And then the third Sunday, again his sermon was just basically, love one another. Finally, the congregation got the message, and they started serving and helping each other in all kinds of new ways. Each one of us, Christian or non-Christian, has a certain natural capacity to love others, to be a loving person that is the result probably of our genetics, certainly of our upbringing, and also clearly of our later life experiences and the choices that we have made. A few weeks ago, Ruth and I found ourselves trying to get our car back into the driveway. There was a lot of wet snow. Um, we weren't getting very far. And then a couple of our neighbors who live several units down from where we live, who we know just a little bit, saw us and they came over to help. I had no reason to believe that they were Christians, 
they're French Canadians, so it's pretty unlikely. Um, things like that happen all the time. Uh, in John 4 7, we read, Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. This and other verses like it suggest to us that every loving action by anyone, Christian or Muslim or atheist or whatever, is at some level inspired and animated by God. That said, love takes on a whole new dimension when we become Christians. Becoming a Christian means, above all, encountering the person of Jesus, who loved us more than we can know, choosing to give oneself to him, and then in response to his love, which Adan talked quite a bit about two weeks ago, to love others. The love that Jesus had for us humans shines through in almost every page of the Gospels. Above all, we see it when Jesus willingly accepted to die for us on the cross, a choice that caused him unimaginable suffering, but that, coupled with the resurrection, opened for us the path to eternal life. The love that we see in Jesus is a particular kind of love. It's not the same kind of love that we can have for chocolate, or the love we may have for hockey, or a particular author, a work of art, a piece of music, or even the attachment and esteem we may have for a friend. It is a kind of love that St. Thomas Aquinas defines simply as to will the good of another. In some translations that I've seen, to, sense, to will the good of another as of for themselves. C.S. Lewis put it just a bit more precisely, love is unselfishly choosing for another's highest good. Not just to will the good of another, but their highest good. We learn what this kind of love looks like, above all when we look at Jesus. The Gospels are full of stories show of Jesus showing his love for people, and of stories that Jesus told to illustrate what he meant by love. These stories are familiar to most of us, and also an endless source of new discoveries and realizations. I will only mention here one such story, because I think it's important to start with the love of Jesus. We read in Matthew 14 about the beheading of John the Baptist, and then Jesus being told the news. We then read that when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. We can imagine that Jesus must have felt great grief and wanted to process what had happened, as we might say today to pray about it. In fact, likely, he was even more grieved than most of us could have been at the sinfulness and unrighteousness of Herod, not to mention the loss of a friend and cousin. But meanwhile, 
the crowds had followed him on foot from the towns, so that when Jesus came ashore, he saw a great crowd. No doubt Jesus had hoped to be alone at that point, or he would have just come back to where he started from. But the text says that he had compassion for them and cured their sin. And when evening came, he miraculously multiplied five loaves and fish, so that 5,000 men, besides women and children, were fed. Did Jesus feel like spending hours helping people at that time? One would guess not. But he overcame his feelings and willed the good of the people around him. He loved them in very practical ways. Over the nearly 2,000 years since countless acts of love by the followers of Jesus have been recorded, and of course, for everyone that has been recorded, there have probably been tens, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions more that were not recorded. I want to take a few moments now to, to briefly describe a few stories that just give a few examples, not at all a complete set, of what love can look like, moving from the people who are close to us to people who are further and further away moving also from direct to indirect expressions of love. <clears throat> Pardon me. In 1979, Mother Teresa, whom most of you have probably heard of, a saintly woman who devoted her life to caring for the most destitute, sick, and dying people of Calcutta in India, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. She was asked, what can we do to promote world peace? And she answered, go home and love your family. It does indeed seem most natural that we start with the people right around us, looking for ways to promote their well-being, overcoming our feelings of frustration and anger, and speaking in a way that respects the dignity of our parent, spouse, or child, and our own for that matter. Overcoming our feelings of tiredness and doing some cleaning up so our partner doesn't have to. But it doesn't always mean being nice or kind. Disciplining a child gently but firmly so they learn to discipline themselves, to speak to grown-ups respectfully even when they're frustrated, to do the work assigned to them as well as they can, to ask for forgiveness when they need to, and so on. That is often a very real but costly love. And this can transpose to relationships among adults, when at times, having done our best to purge our hearts of any feelings of bitterness, we pull up our courage and tell our partner or a friend, or a colleague at work, something we become convinced they need to hear. As C.S. Lewis said, love is something more stern and splendid than mere kindness. These situations can be very challenging, as most of you know. Love can also extend to people who are around us, 
but whom we may not be inclined to pay much attention to. I once heard a Christian professor, Kenneth Elzinger, at a conference for Christian graduate students and faculty, speaking to a group uh, about his faith. And he described how when he went to visit his former graduate students who were working in nice offices in different cities, he would ask them what sort of relationship they have with their janitor, the person who cleans their office. He asked them, if your janitor had a personal problem, would they come to you to ask you what they should do? We may call too to go beyond our immediate circle and start looking for people a bit further away who are in need of having love shown to them. William Tyndale, who lived at about the time of King Henry VIII, it's kind of an old example, but it struck me when I read this. Um, he was the first person to translate the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew into English. While he was in his 30s working on his translation in the Netherlands, he also spent two days per week giving support to others. As he said, my part be not in Christ, if my part be not to follow and live according as I teach. In other words, he felt he had to practice when he was preaching. So, more precisely, on Mondays, he visited other religious refugees from England, and on Saturdays, he walked the streets seeking to minister to the poor. A bit along the same lines at a Christian conference, I heard a British historian, a distinguished woman who had, earned, who had been awarded the Order of the British Empire, uh, tell us everyone should have at any one time at least three people they are helping to bloom. Along these lines, of course, we can well the, the good of another by giving some of our money for people in need. Paul himself asked the Corinthians to regularly set aside money for the poor of Jerusalem. And Christians today regularly give money to help people who are poor, whether in Montreal or other countries with many people in need. But the challenge for us, isn't it, is to know how much of our personal comfort and financial security to give up for the good of others. Some Christians today have made the choice intentionally to live very simply, giving away much more than 10% of their income for the sake of those who are in greater need. At the very least, the more our incomes rise, the more above 10% we should aim to give. I read that C.S. Lewis gave about two-thirds of his income away in the final part of his life. It's easier to do that if you're a Christian because you can trust that God will take care of you in the end. You are building up treasure in heaven where moths and rest uh, do not destroy. Our Old Testament passage from Isaiah partly is relevant to this issue. Our giving can help loose the bonds of injustice undo the thongs of the yoke, let the oppressed go free, 
It could amount to sharing our bread with the hungry and bringing the homeless poor into our house and covering the naked. But how much should we give? This is still, I expect, for many of you, as it is for Ruth and me, my wife Ruth and me, the point of attention. Next, and also relevant to the passage in Isaiah, there are many ways of willing the good of others by doing things that don't benefit another person directly but indirectly. For example, Christians in Canada have devoted themselves to fighting against sex trafficking. That's a way of letting the oppressed go free or to nudge our society towards having fewer abortions or to oppose medical assistance in dying. As those of you who've heard me when I lead prayers know, it seems to me Christians can also show love indirectly by doing what they can to help efforts to slow climate change and the ongoing destruction of our planet, reducing our own carbon footprint by limiting flights, adjusting what we eat, reducing our use of plastics and our consumption of products that are especially harmful to the environment, investing our savings in corporations that are more ethical, and so on. These issues are all of a piece, it seems to me, even though support for them is scattered among different political parties. But here, a word of caution. The 1 Corinthians 13 passage that we read also indicates that if I give away all my possessions but do not have love, I gain nothing. This is the risk associated with putting a lot of energy into these indirect ways of helping. Are we really acting for the good of the other? There can be many subtle reasons why we do such things. Maybe we want to look good in the eyes of certain people we care about. Especially when we are young, maybe we're just rebelling against our parents about the involvement of Christians in social justice movements. C.S. Lewis warned that we must learn to walk before we can run. In Dickens' book, Bleak House, there is a well-known character called Mrs. Jellyby, who spends a tremendous amount of energy trying to support uh, missions in Bora Bora, wherever that is, but hardly takes care of her own family. It's a challenge finding the right balance between spending time and energy caring for people who are very near to us and engaging in these social justice kinds of pursuits and people in between who are less close to us but whom we know and whom we have an opportunity to help. Each one must find their own path. So this brings me to the third part of my sermon, which is what can we do to facilitate our growth in love? Scripture teaches, teaches us that love is a fruit of the Spirit. As Paul says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Christian love or charity grows together with these other fruits in the garden of our heart. Plants have a life in them 
that makes them grow. But as gardeners, there's a lot we can do to help them grow, remove weeds, ensure that, they, that the plants get enough water, and so on. So I want to talk now about what we can do to grow in love and get pretty practical. First, a couple of weeds out of a number, I don't want to keep you here for an hour, to get out of the way. The first one, which, as those of you who know me relatively well, uh, reflects my own personal struggles, is emotional difficulties. None of us have grown up in perfect homes with perfect parents. Some of us had worse growing up experiences where not all of our needs were met. Sometimes some people had traumatic experiences that just affected them very deeply. So we may find ourselves as adults with deep feelings of insecurity, with recurring thoughts that are very self-critical, where we often compare ourselves with others and usually conclude there's something pretty wrong with us, and so on. When we struggle with that kind of thing, it's just harder to focus our attention on God, on the tasks that we need to do, on the needs of others. This could be the topic of a sermon on its own. In fact, that's my first idea of a topic for this sermon. But for now, I will only say this. If you're struggling with such thoughts, then I would urge you, by some combination of prayer, including healing prayer conferences, psychotherapy, working assiduously to replace preoccupying negative thought patterns with positive ones, and if necessary, medication. I'm a professor in the Department of Psychiatry, and I've read quite a bit about all these things, and I do think there's overuse of medication. To seek to reduce the hold of such thoughts on your consciousness. We think less about ourselves usually when we feel we're okay. The goal is not to find a happier way of being self-preoccupied, but of being less and less preoccupied with yourself, so that love has room to grow. Another obstacle to love is unforgiveness or resentment. Our Lord Jesus is very clear that we need to forgive those who have hurt us. It's so basic to being a Christian that Jesus included in the Lord's Prayer that we're going to see, that we're going to read shortly. It's very difficult to will the good of a person with whom we're angry. But what does it mean to forgive? Years ago I heard a definition of forgiveness that I found very helpful. Letting go of shattered expectations. I wonder how many people have heard that definition. <laughs> Only my wife. Um, it was actually uh, somebody who did their PhD on the topic of forgiveness who came up with this definition. I think it's a very practical definition. And it applies also to situations which are not that uncommon, where the other person never asks for forgiveness, whether because they don't want to, or because they're not part of your life anymore. And now, 
to the deepest and most intractable obstacle to love, which affects us all, uh, the self. The self is that part of us that wants for itself food, drink, sex, acceptance, recognition, even admiration. The self is, well, selfish. It constantly gets in the way of our purely seeking the good of the other without any thought of our own advantage. And here's an interesting distinction that was pointed out uh, in a sermon that Ruth and I heard at Canterbury Cathedral years ago. When we are younger, the self tends to lead us towards sins of commission, doing things we should not have done, like taking advantage of others in various ways, seeking experiences of various kinds for our own pleasure, working to make more money than others, or be more successful professionally, and so on. But as we get older, we tend to become content with our place in life, and our self tends to just want to enjoy what it has and not be bothered. So we fall rather into sins of omission. There are different ways of being selfish. In both cases, the self is getting in the way of love. So how do we deal with this bothersome self? In the New Testament, we find again and again powerful images of leaving behind, of dying, of laying aside and instead putting on Christ. Six times in the Gospels, we find Jesus telling us not to seek to save our lives, but to lose them. Paul tells us in Romans 13 to lay aside the works of darkness and instead put on Christ. He tells us in Colossians 3.3 that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There is a kind of black and whiteness about it, no room for compromise. This doesn't fit well with our culture, which likes to have things both ways as much as possible. Dying to self, putting on Christ, is something we need to learn to do, a sort of thought pattern that we need to develop. I don't completely understand how this works. But prompted with, by my spiritual director, I'm experimenting with a kind of intentional trying to look at others with disinterested love. For example, when I'm, a, when I'm in a meeting at work, in person or by Zoom, and after more than 40 years of being a Christian, I still feel like I'm just a beginner at it. It's a bit like the picture on the screen that some of you may be familiar with. You can look at it one way and you see an old woman. Look at it another way and you see a young one. Can you all see it both ways? Yes. Once you learn how, to, how you can see the picture either way, you can just choose to look at it the way you want. But looking at others as objects of our love is of course just the first step. As Christians, we are then called to pray for them and to speak and act for their good. Which brings me to my next to last general point. I started by noting 
that non-Christians often seek the good of the other. They often act with disinterested love. So what difference does it make to be a Christian? It does so in at least seven ways that I can think of. Maybe you can think of more ways than I have. So first, when we're Christians, we're constantly reminded, and again, Dan reminded us of that two weeks ago, um, and that's why I chose the verses from Psalm 36 for today, that our God is a God of love. He loves us, and it's important for us humans to feel loved. If we don't feel loved, we are unhappy, and it's hard for us to love others. Second, if God loves us, he loves others just as much as he loves us. We're not special. We're just one person among billions. And he loves even the people that we don't like, even our enemies. So if God loves this other person, and we love God, then that's another reason to love them. Third, most of you will remember the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. And I'll actually read, read that bit in case you don't remember it. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then a righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. So there Jesus tells us that he's actually within the other, especially within those who are in the, on the margins, those who are sick or in prison, in willing their good, in acting for their good. We're acting for Jesus, we're serving Jesus. Fourth, the Holy Spirit comes to our aid in changing us and guiding us toward loving others. He grows the fruit of love within us, along with this other fruit, if we cooperate with him. Fifth, as Christians, we are called to live in community with each other. Almost any church, ours included, includes a mixture of people who don't always have a lot of affinity for each other. A bit like a classroom. But unlike in a classroom, we're regularly challenged to learn to love, i.e. to pursue the good of everyone in the community. And another effect of being in a Christian community, at least a good Christian community, is that we see others who are more loving than we are. This spurs us to keep aiming higher. Sixth, and a bit relatedly, 
Christians are called to pray for others. When we pray for another person, we're willing their good. We're spending time and energy on an activity that, especially if it's done in secret, as Jesus enjoins us, has as its sole aim the good of that person. It's a helpful discipline on the path to growing love, which great saints tended to devote a lot of time and energy to. And last but not least, Christians are called to friendship with God, which implies faithfulness to Him. Some time ago, I was talking to someone who was telling me about a brother who had worked for many years as an aid worker in Africa. Her brother told her, interestingly, that he found non-Christian aid workers often became disillusioned and a bit jaded. They felt frustrated by the lack of progress that they saw. But Christian aid workers seemed to not lose their loving and positive attitudes much. I'm sure it's a lot because of their relationship with God, which strengthens them and sustains them. Looking at, looking at it another way, when you are a Christian, it becomes less about achieving results. You just want to be faithful to what you believe God has called you to do, and you can leave the results of your, of your efforts in His hands. You remain a child of God, and that is fundamentally enough. So, final slide. As we are now in the season of Lent, I pray that these reflections will cause us to consider the ways that we have not been as loving as we could have, either by the things we have done, the thoughts that we've had, or the things we failed to do, the thoughts and prayers we failed to have and to make, and to look to Jesus, who loved each one of us enough to live and die among us, so that we might truly live. May he grant us all the grace to do what we can, so that the fruit of the Spirit, including love, can grow more and more in our minds 